Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Well, this is my first opportunity to present uh, here at church. My wife, uh, Michelle, and I uh, have been attending for almost two years, uh, and we have been very blessed by this church family. And uh, as you know, Pastor John is is uh, dealing with an injury. He's recovering. Seems like he's doing well. And <laughs> we're hoping that uh, he'll be back in the pulpit soon. So today I'm standing in for him. Uh, I had forgotten that Marvin was on vacation, so I called him. I said, hey, Marvin, can you read the passage tonight? And uh, he said, I'm in Utah. I don't know that that will work. So Marvin, if you're listening, uh, safe travels, and we'll see you back soon. Well, uh, there are certain things that I use to, to gauge whether I've been successful in giving any message, and one of them tonight, uh, my, my key success factor will be if my wife stays awake, because she said she was going to be tired, and my, uh, my droning might put her to sleep. I'm hoping that I do not put anyone to sleep today. Uh, God's Word is alive, and I am looking forward to uh, delivering that to you. Uh, Pastor John had uh, given me a set of CDs. Uh, this, this is a collection of uh, sermons and messages given at uh, Calvary Chapel uh, conferences. And I have been, uh, as, I, as I work security, I have an opportunity to uh, listen to these messages. And what's great is uh, in one of those messages, they made reference to the high priestly prayer found in John chapter 17, and I thought to myself, oh, I, I wasn't aware. And once I read it, I, I, it became familiar to me, but uh, I had never uh, thought of it that way. So thank you, David. Um, thank you for reading, too. You have a, a great reading voice. Singing and reading, good gifts to have in the church. I am going to be mindful of time. I was told that I have uh, no more than three hours. Pastor John just gave a thumbs up. Okay. Uh, for those of you who are joining us by radio, welcome. Uh, Facebook, wherever you are, may the Lord be with you, and I pray that these words will be a blessing to you. Uh, David again wrote, or he read, John chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles and you haven't yet turned, John chapter 17. Much has been said about Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. David Guzik, pastor of Calvary Chapel in Santa Barbara, California, said, quote, most of us know that it is to hear most of us know what it is to hear a true man or woman of God deep in prayer. 
There is something holy and awesome about it. Far beyond all that was this prayer, Jesus prayed unto his God and Father, which is the only long, continuous prayer of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Did you know that? This prayer that we read is the only recorded uh, continuous prayer, continuous prayer of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. The sentences, he continues, the sentences are simple, but the ideas are deep, moving, and meaningful. John 17 is a unique opportunity to see the nature and the heart of Jesus. In this prayer, Jesus will touch on many of the themes developed in this gospel. Glory, glorify, sent, believe, world, and love are some key ideas you're going to see here. And um, as you'll see, I, I, uh, in a, uh, a hat tip to uh, the Calvary Chapel movement, I've, I've taken some of my notes here and some of the quotes from some of the pastors I've been listening to. So I hope you enjoy that. Uh, E.W. Hengstenberg, in his commentary on John, said, This prayer, which forms the climax of our Lord's last discourse to his disciples, has been termed the high priestly prayer of Christ, and rightly so, in as far as we have here the most amply unfolded intercession of Jesus for his people. Jesus prays, and there's three sections here. So I, I, in your Bibles, it might be notated this way. There's three sections to this prayer. First, you'll see Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. Then you'll see that in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And then finally, in verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all believers. It may be helpful for us to look at the context in which this prayer was given. Jesus had, been, had just given a message from God to them where he warns and he comforts them. The famous passage of the vine, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches, that comes just before this. That's uh, in a couple chapters before. Now he turns to the Father and he prays for himself and them. He also had just eaten the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper with his disciples. So we can imagine that all were feeling a great deal of anticipation and probably some uncertainty with heartfelt speeches and loving farewells. So that's good context for us to have as we go into this prayer. As we go through these three sections, pay special attention to what Jesus prays for and what he does not pray for. So let's start with the first section, Uh, Jesus prays for himself, John chapter 17, 1 through 5. Verse 1 reads, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. Notice here that Jesus is speaking directly to the Father as he looks up in a posture, a perfect posture of submission. The New Testament tells us that Jesus has an ongoing, present work 
of intercession for his people. Let's look at Romans 8.34. It reads, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Another verse that talks about intercession is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Another big idea that we see in this passage is this idea of glory or glorification, glorify. There is a similar prayer in John 12:27 through 28 where Jesus says, "Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name." Then a voice came from heaven saying, "I have both glorified it and will glorify it again." So let's look at what it means to glorify And why did Jesus want his father to glorify him? According to Strong's Concordance, by the way, I went to my shelf and I found that I did have a Strong's Concordance, didn't just do the electronic version, and I looked at the front cover, copyright 1890. That was one that my mom had given to me, and uh, I, I was like, wow, I really haven't spent much time with this book. I should spend more time with it. The Greek word for glorify is doxadzo. I'm sure I didn't say that right. Doxadzo, maybe, is better. And it means to render or to esteem glorious, to make glorious, full of glory, to honor or magnify. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 further describes what this glory and honor involves. Now, I'm going to pause here and just say I I had an opportunity to uh, give this message to a group of believers in China, and they uh, had a lot of questions about what is this glory? What does that mean? And I guess maybe because I just read the text so many times, or maybe we just as Americans, we just throw around this word glory. We really haven't spent much time thinking about what does it mean? And so her, uh, this question from one of the Chinese believers caused me to really spend some time thinking and mulling over this. So let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, it says, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, that's a key thing if you want to underline that or make note of it, um, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. I'll repeat that phrase as well, expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had himself purged our sin our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So those key phrases there, I believe, give us insights as to what it means to, uh, to uh, glorify. Jesus asks the Father 
to glorify himself because God speaks through Jesus. Jesus owns everything. God created everything through him. He is the expression of the Father's greatness and character. Jesus not only holds all things and redeems those who believe, but also sits at the seat of power near God the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 reads, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. There's that word, glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that verse. Let me just read it one more time. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So glory is described as his radiance or his brightness and expression of God's image and power. Well, let's look at another phrase used here, the hour has come. There are several times during his ministry where Jesus says that his time or hour has not yet come. We see this in multiple places. For example, uh, the turning of the water into wine. He says, you know, why do you, I don't have it actually in front of me, but it's basically, why are you asking me to do this? My hour has not yet come. And so uh, you can look at those various references. The mission that the Father had given to him to save mankind was about to be fulfilled at the cross. Here, he basically says to the Father, I'm ready, let's go. And I think that's an important aspect for us to understand in his posture to the Father. I'm ready, let's go. Verse 2, so that was verse 1 if you were tracking with me. Verse 2 shows us that the Father has given the Son authority over all mankind in order to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given to the Son. So you'll see it reads, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. In our language, the word should is often used to indicate a conditional duty or obligation, whereas the original language is better rendered shall, which indicates that his will to give eternal life. He shall give eternal life. This rendering affirms Christ's promise to give eternal life. The Son's authority is affirmed in John 3, 35 and 6, which reads, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Let's look now at this idea of knowing Christ. In verse 3, it shows us that eternal life means that we may know the one true God and his Son, Jesus Christ. It reads, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here we see the connection between eternal life and knowledge of God. Philippians 3.8 reads, Yet indeed I also count... All things, loss 
for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And in verse 10, it reads that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I was visiting a small group of Christians years ago, and there was a brother who introduced himself. And almost immediately he asked me if I knew Jesus. We didn't have any kind. It was it was almost immediate. It was like, hi, I'm Tony. Hi, I'm so-and-so. Do you know Jesus? That's that's how we started. And of course, that if if that's ever happened to you, maybe that's thrown you off. Like, wow, you just asked a very deep question. Now, truthfully, I told him, I said, yes, I do. I know Jesus. But I've often thought about how critical it is that we ask others that question. Do you know Jesus? If your answer is yes, then you have eternal life. If your answer is no, then you have an opportunity to believe and receive him right now. This very moment, as I am speaking, you have that opportunity. Verse 4 shows us that the Son has glorified the Father on earth by finishing the work which was assigned to him. It reads, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, my wife, Michelle, will tell you that I am a great procrastinator. I have a habit of starting home improvement projects and not finishing them. In fact, some here probably have heard my stories about what I've started and not finished. Jesus glorifies his Father by completing his mission to save mankind. Jesus leaves nothing unfinished. John 3.16, you're familiar with it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 5 shows us that the Father will glorify the Son with the glory that the Son had before creation. It reads, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Here Jesus references his existence in heaven with the Father. So, uh, one of the very few times where that's done in Scripture where he's referencing this time before creation. John 1.1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus asks for his Father to glorify him as he is about to enter into the most cruel and unjust form of capital punishment known at that time so that he could finish his mission and return to heaven to be alongside his father. In Philippians 2, 5 and 11, it says, let this mind be in you. Now I'm going to pause here because that phrase caught me off guard. I've read it many times, but this time as I was doing the study, it caught me off guard because the instruction is for our minds to be in the same way as his mind. Listen, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Are you worried about your reputation? There's a lot of people that are. But don't be worried of your reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What calling has the Lord asked us to finish? I want you to just take a moment and think about my question. What calling has the Lord asked us to finish? This calling may produce both great glory for God, but also great suffering. Pastor Johnny, Pastor John, we had a Pastor Johnny in our other church, so I, I slip into the Johnny. I apologize. Um, Pastor John probably is feeling the suffering side of his calling. Are we willing to humble ourselves and endure the suffering of this world in order to be with him in heaven? It seems like a pretty easy answer. Yes, of course. Until you consider what that suffering might entail. In summary, in the first five verses of John 17, Jesus is praying for himself. Not selfishly, but in full alignment and obedience to the will of the Father. He is resolved to complete his mission and return to his Father where, where he will be glorified with him. The next section is John chapter 17, 6 through 19. If you look there now, we're going to talk about this section where he prays for his disciples. Verse 6 reads, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of this world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The word manifested is one that we probably don't use too much anymore, but it basically means revealed. So Jesus had revealed the Father to the 12 disciples who were taken out of the world and given to Jesus. What does this mean, taken out of the world? It means that they were in the world and they were plucked out of it for his purpose. John 8.55 says, Yet you have not known him, but I know him. This is Jesus speaking. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. There's that phrase, keep his word. There are many people in the church today who claim to know Jesus, but how many of them are keeping his word? Are you, the one listening to my voice now, are you keeping his word? Only you know the answer to that. John 14, 21 and 24 reads, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, there's that word, manifest. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 7 and 8 show us that the disciples understood what Jesus taught was from the Father. 
who sent Jesus to them. It reads, Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me. So Jesus said, I gave them what you gave me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and that they have believed that you sent me. So basically Jesus is saying, they know that I came from you, Father, and that you sent me and they believe in me. John 14.10 reads, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. In the same way, it's important for us to, uh, as believers, to emulate Christ when we speak. Do we speak on our own authority? Or do we speak on the authority of our Father who dwells in us and does good works through us? John chapter 16, 27 through 30 reads, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See now, you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. So there you see the affirmation of the disciples saying, We know you came from God and we believe what you are saying. Verse 9 and 10 reads, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I am glorified in them? Remember that God's glory is the revelation of his character and his presence. So being glorified in them means that the disciples lived their lives reflected the character of the Son and the Father. So a question for all of us, do our lives reflect Jesus' character and presence? If we were accused by a court of law of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? It's a question that I've heard other speakers uh, lay out there. And it gets you to think, doesn't it? If you were held in front of a court of law and the accusation is Tony is a Christian, would they be able to present enough evidence that that was true? Now you might say, well, what things would they look at? Maybe church attendance from a secular perspective. They might say, did he attend church? And of course, I might get some good marks on that. But I think more importantly is the fruit of my life, the product, the results of my life. Does it show that I am a Christ follower? And that's, very, that's a very good question to be asking yourself every day. What was it today that might have been evidence that I am a Christ follower? 
Did you notice that Jesus is praying for his disciples and not for the world? Very interesting point. Uh, in one of my Bible studies, the, uh, the, the believer in China said, um, uh, well, we, of course Jesus was praying for the whole world. And actually, he wasn't. If you read here, Jesus mentions the world 19 times in his high priestly prayer, making a clear distinction between believers and unbelievers. And he says, I do not pray for the world. Now, what do we make of that? We, We should not conclude, as some might, that we should be avoiding prayers for unbelievers. That's not the the point here. Since there are other scriptures that encourage us to do that, but we can conclude that this prayer was focused on believers, especially here for his disciples. Also, you will notice that the Father and the Son have joint ownership of the disciples for his glory. So I hope what you're seeing here is the great care and attention that he shows towards his disciples and the perfect unity between the Father and the Son. There are four key petitions that are found in verses uh, 11 and following. If you want to write these down, they are, first, Jesus prays that they might be kept. And this is uh, 11 through 16. So verses 11 through 16, Jesus prays that they might be kept. Also in verses 17 through 19, Jesus prays that they might be sanctified. In verses 11 and then skip forward to 20 and 23, Jesus prays that they might be unified. And finally, Jesus prays in verses 24 through 26 that they might be glorified. So the four ideas there, four petitions, kept, sanctified, unified and glorified. Let's look at the first of these, which is Jesus prays that they might be kept, verses 11 through 16. Verse 11 reads, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. So he is about to leave this world and return to his father. Jesus asks his father to secure the disciples. He's going to do this uh, later through the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the third person of the Trinity. In some manuscripts, this is rendered, keep them through your name, which you have given me, which might be a bit confusing because what is it that was given? Was it the disciples or the name? So we have reference to the Father's name, which is important because he is, his name is a reflection of his character and reputation among creation. Jesus also asks his Father to keep the disciples unified, just as the Father and Son are one. Jesus says this in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. Romans 15, 5-6 also says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I read that passage, I said, wow, 
show me one church where that might be true. That, that's a, if you can find a church where everyone is speaking with one mind, one mouth, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you've got a keeper. Would you agree? Yeah. I found that to be true here, this church, by the way. I recently spoke, others might differ with that. Who knows? I, I'm a new, a new guy, so I don't know. But I, that's my uh, casual observation so far, two years in. I recently spoke with a Greek Orthodox priest. Uh, this was, I was always doing security work, uh, about the division that happened between the Catholics and the Orthodox branches of Christianity. He mentioned the need for Christians to come together and to abandon the petty disagreements that separate us. I agreed in principle with him, but I said if we are to be unified, this cannot be done in our own power, as some are now advocating an ecumenical merging of all world religions. But we must be unified, using the phrase we see here, according to Jesus Christ that we may, quote, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that would preclude being unified with those that would deny Jesus as the Son of God, as the only way to God the Father. So what am I trying to say? Am I in agreement that we should set aside our differences? Yes, according to Jesus Christ. In verse 12, Jesus said that he has kept the disciples except for Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him so that the scripture would be fulfilled. It reads, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now, there are four interesting footnotes. If you are into grammar, you'll love this part. If you're not, you'll say, move on. Uh, in the New King James, there are footnotes, and I, I wish to just read them now. Um, in the Alexandrian text, the oldest but sometimes questioned manuscript, the phrase, in the world, was omitted. Second, in this older text, the phrase, which you gave me, uh, and I guarded them or guarded it, was added after your name. Third, the word lost was rendered destroyed in the older text. And fourth, the word perdition was rendered destruction. So although the overall meaning doesn't change, it may help the reader to understand that Jesus protected both his disciples and his father's name or reputation. I thought that was interesting. I don't know if you find it interesting. Sometimes I find things interesting. Uh, yesterday, I went to the optical store. My wife, uh, I, t I may have told this to you. I went to the uh, to uh, Shaco Optical in Antioch. First time I'd been there. And I came up and I, and I said, I'm your 10 o'clock. And she said, oh, we are Tony Raymond. I said, no, we are not Tony Raymond. I am Tony Raymond. And... Uh, she looked at me very oddly, and I said, oh, that, that, you would understand that if you're a grammarian. And her response was literally, is that from Star Trek? <laughs> so, so some of you uh, may be grammarians, 
Some of you may not. But um, I didn't even write that in my message. Isn't it amazing how things come to your mind, Pastor John, when you're given a message and things just pop in your mind? I don't know if that was from the Lord. I just saying that was something I came to my mind. Okay. Um, so, these uh, four footnotes might be interesting to you. The word uh, lost, this is an important. Um, uh, the word lost often has connotations of negligence or lack of care. So one may think that Jesus failed in some way to keep Judas. Um, <clears throat> John 6.39 reads, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up the last day. So even here we see that this uh, notion that uh, Jesus lost Judas was refuted here by this other verse, that he should lose nothing but raise it up in the last day. So Jesus fulfilled God's will, and Judas's betrayal and destruction was not a result of failure, but a prophetic fulfillment of God's perfect will. I just want to make sure I'm cautious on time. So excuse me as I just check my clock. Okay, uh, a few more minutes. Let's take a look at verse 13 and talk about joy and fulfillment. Verse 13 shows us that God's word brings joy and fulfillment. It reads, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What does it mean to have his joy fulfilled in us? Well, John 15, 11 reads, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. According to Strong's Concordance, the Greek word means to be filled or well supplied with something, to cram as in a net or to fill up as in a hollow. So it is God's will for us to be full of joy. Yet, we have so many believers that lack this fullness of joy. I hope no one says amen to that. Of all the things that you would say amen to, I hope it's not that, but it's it's probably very true. You'd agree with that statement that it is hard to find Christians who seem to uh, show or reflect this fullness of joy. Why is that? Well, could it be that they are lacking a true relationship with Jesus or maybe not regularly in the word of God, reading or hearing the things that Jesus has spoken to us. The key to immeasurable joy is living in intimate contact with Christ, the source of all joy. This joyfulness is not merely an emotion or a higher level of spiritual intimacy, but fundamental to our walk of faith. Pastor Chuck Smith, in his message on this chapter, listed five ways that this fulfillment of joy is connected to our faith walk. But I'm going to pause there and save that for the second part of this message, which will be uh, next week. I hope you'll be able to join us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bless, as I have asked before, that you would bless these words, that they come from your holy mouth, 
Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would cause these seeds to grow in our hearts and that you would be found faithful through us. We are broken vessels, Father. We are sinful, but you choose to use broken vessels. Thank you, Father, for this prayer that you've given to us, your son speaking to you candidly. He prays for himself, as we also must do, pray for ourselves. But he prays then for his disciples, his nearest and dearest. Help us to do the same, to be praying for our families, to be praying for those we see on a daily basis. And then, Father, he prays for those who will come later, the generations of believers, ourselves included, who need to know that you are near them. Thank you, Father, for all of these uh, wonderful truths that you've shown to us today. We pray that we'd now go walk in a worthy manner to display and to glorify you in this world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.